This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brent. Today, Steve Carney joins me to talk about his new co-written book with Ulla Madsen entitled Education in Radical Uncertainty, Transgression in Theory and Method. The book offers a major critique of the field of comparative education and asks us to dwell in experience rather than take value judgments. And I guess the whole argument of the book can also be seen um, through the structure, the way we present our argument. In some ways, it's a very familiar structure. We still have a that traditional introduction, uh, a heavy section on theory and method, then we present our data and have a discussion and, and reflection of that. So in that sense, I think readers will find it um, familiar as a text to navigate through. But in other ways, it is quite unusual. And, and the essence of that is the decision we made to, to to write the book in a fragmented style. This is a powerful book in both form and content and demands to be read by anyone working in the field of comparative and international education. Steve Carney is a professor of educational studies at Roskilde University in Denmark. Steve Carney, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. Thanks for inviting me. It's good to talk to you today. I don't normally start conversations about structures of new books, but your new co-written book, the structure seems so incredibly important to the idea that you are discussing in the book. So how would you describe your book's structure? Okay, thanks. Well, yeah, I guess it is true that the structure is unusual and it is important. And I guess the whole argument of the book can also be seen um, through the structure, the way we present our argument. In some ways, it's a very familiar structure. We still have a that traditional introduction, uh, a heavy section on theory and method. Then we present our data and have a discussion and, and reflection of that. So in that sense, I think readers will find it um, familiar as a text to navigate through. But in other ways, it is quite unusual. And and the essence of that is the decision we made to to write the book in a fragmented style. Um, So even though those conventional sections can be identified throughout the book, and in fact, on every page, everything is presented in a fragmented way. Um, And there's reasons for that, that are theoretical reasons. But it means that when the reader enters the book, it's not the sort of text where you need to start from the first page and work your way through to the completion. And we sort of did that because we thought that's really how the world is organized. And that's really how people experience the world, that they're, they're constantly in a moment, they're present in a moment. And then it's a job, it's a cognitive process afterwards to try and connect those different moments into a meaningful story. Whereas the history of the text, at least in the Western tradition, is to have that very clear narrative and that structure that takes the reader to a predetermined ending. And so we took that risky decision of trying to mess with that uh, structure as a way to uh, encourage people to read and dwell and get stuck, to dip in and dip out, and then to ponder, and then ultimately to find their own meaning in the text. So in that sense, the structure was an invitation for the reader to sort of take control of the process of interpretation. It's exactly how I read the book, I must say. I started from the beginning like a normal book but then i did sort of jump ahead and it's really easy to sort of read these different fragments and i also found myself sort of reading from beginning to end but jumping ahead at points and then also going back and looking at other fragments that i sort of read earlier and it's unusual definitely it's also a bit hard it is i mean you know it started making me realize like how comfortable i am with reading a book from start to finish and when it's not like that it actually can become a bit 
frustrating. And I think you even you sort of recognize that and you even tell the reader like some readers are going to find this really hard. Yeah. And I think, of course, if this was written to an audience in cultural studies, there may be more awareness and familiarity and acceptance of different sort of genres of interpretation and presentation. But as you know, for a range of reasons, education has a very particular uh, operates within a particular episteme. And that also has implications for how we present our arguments. And, and it was that sort of thing we were trying to break away from out of a dissatisfaction with a lot of the reading in our field. So it was an intentional decision to sort of critique the dominant way in which books and articles are written in specifically the field of comparative education. Specifically in comparative education, which maybe we can talk about at some point, but also in educational studies, even though there's a, there's a rich tradition of um, transgressive thought and transgressive writing, especially in research methodology, maybe to some extent in curriculum studies. In comparative education, you don't find much of that. You know, and of course, there's a an overarching, um, often political, occasionally ideological point to comparative education writing that then requires a certain sort of establishment of an, an aim, a hypothesis, um, a starting point, which often has an embodied solution built into the question. You know, so even though we went through those debates, at least in comparative education, around uh, positivism and the sort of scientific tradition of doing comparative work, we moved away from that through the 70s and then certainly into the 90s, there's still that strong DNA, I would say, that there's got to be a point to an academic text. The text has to take you somewhere, and that text has to have a normative value for society. And once you have those sort of parameters, it's really difficult, I think, to try and escape that and to write something that we think is more open-ended, more provocative, and more polemic. Why do you think comparative education does have this in its DNA? This Why are we sort of stuck in that positivism, in a sense. That's your term, I think, to say stuck in positivism. I'm not sure it's that hard. There have been, you know, there are different movements. Like like all academic fields, I think there are contests, you know, about the soul of the discipline or the field. So, and we've had those in comparative education. The development turn in the 70s and, and, and afterwards took things in another direction away from this, the pure scientific study of phenomena in a comparative of way. Many of the great advances in educational studies have come to us through post-structuralism. And there's a small space for that, I would say, in comparative education. There's another debate, or I would say a schism, between what in the continental tradition we think of as academic comparative education as opposed to a more applied uh, comparative education. I think ultimately education itself has these normative roots. In the Anglo-American tradition, has often been connected and come out of social science. So for very good reasons, it's already looking at the world in order to analyze processes and in order to be able to intervene or you know to improve the quality of life. So the social science origins of education have been really important to you know contemporary comparative education. I think the overall emphasis in our book is that c the comparative study of education will continue down one particular narrow pathway if it can't find its way back to its humanistic roots. You know, and in the continental tradition, pedagogy, pedagogic in Danish, comes out of the humanities. Uh, but in many Anglo-Saxon contexts, educational studies is grounded in the social sciences. And I think a humanistic tradition expects more open-ended inquiry and a respect for perspectives. You know, I mean, we know that if you're studying poetry or the visual arts or literature, it's a little more doctrinaire to insist on one reading. So there's an openness in the humanities to perspectives. And I think that's not so apparent in the field of educational studies, because the, sp the perspective is, how can we 
move towards the good life and how can education help us in that journey and especially in, in comparative education which has always been tightly connected to the understanding of international relations between education systems and educational performance in countries it already had a very practical starting point and i don't think we've ever really escaped that so and your book is trying to escape that trying to push in new directions new formats and structures sort of beyond and post structures so it makes me wonder then because like you said in the beginning the the book to some extent is it feels normal because there is a beginning there is a theory section and then there is this maybe empirical section that we might call it some sort of comparative case study that you end up doing of three different countries denmark south korea and zambia so how did you approach those sort of case studies or the comparative case study and i know even in your book you sort of challenge what do we even mean by a case how did you approach that study within the traditions of comparative education but from the critiques that you're you you were just talking about trying to come at it from a less sort of applied comparative education perspective and perhaps a more humanistic or or not humanistic more out of the humanities i should say yes yes and i should have said that more from the humanities rather than a, than a humanistic tradition well that's a good question and i think people who i mean i haven't written that many books i think i've shifted to that book format over the last five years or so but m most of my career has been you know uh, the, the shorter article which is another type of genre but i think writing a book in hindsight exposed the obvious truth that it always ends in a completely different place from where it started you know and i think when we when we first envisaged this project there were two things working one it was after i had written a paper that i termed policyscapes where i deliberately brought together three country cases and three levels of education in those countries that had nothing in common that would never have been seen as comparable and i did that as an experiment because i was trying to expose the contours of a global space through which all education systems and levels in education had to respond. So I had that thinking that when I started talking with Ulla about this project, shouldn't we continue that experiment and get away from the policy level and get into the practice of education? So that was a reason to pick cases that seem different. But of course, all cases have some relation to each other. And as we write in the book, this is a book that starts in Denmark. It's written by, for the most part, Danish authors, at least people writing from a Danish context. So any comparative work done by Danes with a Danish case is always going to be in a particular relation to the other cases. And we were inspired by a, a short book by Dominic Mousset about uh, called the, the geopolitics of emotions. We don't use it in the, in the book, but we liked his idea of trying to see the ways that the West Europe was now looking upon Asia through the lens of fear, you know, rising Asia. This is you know, maybe 15, 10 years ago. Africa in particular, the global South in general, was looking at Europe as this place of opportunity, one largely excluded for them, whereas people in Europe were looking at the South still through those sort of eyes of benevolence. So on the one hand, the European gaze to Asia was increasingly uh, shaped by um, reticence and fear and foreboding about the rise of, of powers in the East, but some comfort and familiarity with this sense of superiority with the South. And he was trying to argue that the European mindset, and there's many problems in thinking like that, was at this point of flux where we were quite confused about who we are as Europeans because we kept looking over our shoulder to our demise, but then looking over our other shoulder to where we saw ourselves as still being the masters 
of the global game. So we thought we've got those three cases, but it is true that if you look at Danish education policy through the 90s and 2000s, it was really shaped by very abstract ideas of the rise of uh, the, the Asian tigers and then our dependence on a trading and then some form of political relation with China. And in all those countries, Danes really didn't have a good understanding of the social structures and the culture of those societies, but had to learn, I guess, to step aside and become a junior partner. So there's that at the same time as um, throughout the 90s, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, all through the Scandinavian countries, international development assistance became a major priority. And so you had this period where Denmark was investing, the term they used, enormous sums, uh, especially in the social sectors and education sectors in about six or seven key countries. You know, so you had on the one hand, Danes feeling inadequate and worried about the future, uh, but then also in some way a dark legacy about our right to decide what the world should like look like for those who can't work it out for themselves. And that shaped a lot of educational thinking. So we wanted to find three cases that could continue that sort of experimental method, but also think about the Danish subject in relation to these other geopolitical and subjectivizing elements. And so that's why we picked all of that. Yeah. And sort of affective emotions, right? I mean, fear and, you know, there's issues, foreboding, I, I mean, yeah, arrogance. Yeah. And so and that sort of shape, you know, that shaped our thinking. We, In the end, we have a theoretical section why we rejected effect theory. And of course, there is a contrary current in cultural studies in particular that's a little skeptical about effect theory. That's another discussion. But we had that sort of geopolitical uh, reach, that methodological ambition, and then we were taken away with a lot of Jean Baudrillard's analysis of society. And so I think the project in the end morphed from something that was a comparative education experiment to, to consider three countries to one that started to think about the social psychological nature of subjectivity in those three societies, but also the connections across them, like a global subjectivity, and then thinking about you know some of the very dark pronouncements people were making around Jean Baudrillard's understanding of societies of simulation, you know the loss of meaning, because that was a really peculiar cocktail that Denmark was sort of thinking of itself being about to be dominated, but able to dominate other countries. Young people were seeing themselves as global citizens, but people who were guests in Asia, but masters in the South. And then this social theory saying, well, the subject is disappearing. Meaning is becoming submerged under a surfeit of meaning. You know, this absolute proliferation of signs in consumer society, in media society, means that young people in particular just can't find a simple dominant narrative anymore. But somehow they're in education systems that have these big dominant narratives. And it was that sort of dissonance we really wanted to study. And, and that's why the shift went on to looking at youth in school. And I would say that these case studies, quote unquote, case studies are also written in that fragmented way. And in a sense, you experience the way in which youth might understand the world through these fragments. And that sort of there's something there about global subjectivity in a sense that you're dwelling in, I feel like. Yeah, and I think it would have been comfortable and open to criticism if two white northern researchers just went to Zambia and studied that classic sort of theme of you know global policies and local struggles to make meaning. Because we know that in, in the Western world, young people uh, are really struggling to find a clear direction when they get these overheated signals that the world is at their feet, that education is the path to success when they look over their shoulder and see structural unemployment 
government, a rejection of consumerism, a lack of interest in corporate jobs and careers. We knew that there was something there that just doesn't get picked up in educational studies and certainly not in comparative studies. From this perspective or perspectives and from the work that you were doing, what then would be some of the big critiques of comparative education as a field? Like if we could focus in a little bit more on that field in, in particular, like having written this book, having, you know, thought deeply, theoretically and methodologically, what, you know, what comes out as some of the big critique of the field of comparative ed? Yeah, that's also a good question. Some way I'm reluctant to be too critical because, you know, I'm part of that field and I've played a role in forming that field and consolidating certain northern gaze, you know, and a certain a certain scientific gaze, you know, and I'm con and some of my colleagues um good colleagues um, in Europe and in North America have responded to the book with sort of subtle comments that it's still very much northern science, you know. So there are different types of objections to comparative education as they are to educational studies. I think the overriding one is this, which we write about in the book, is the critique that educational scholars make of instrumentalism, quantification, and so forth, is often responded to by educational studies scholars with the same sort of scientific method. And I find that peculiar. In countries like the United States and, and Britain, Australia, you'll find a really rich seam of scholarship critiquing neoliberalism, but many scholars are using the same realist or critical realist perspective on the world. They're fighting fire with fire, but in an uneven battle. So I think one thing is our field has and I'm, now I'm saying I'm talking about comparative education, but I think we've been too willing to try and win arguments through the logic of science when the, when, when the logic of science is exactly the weapon that organizations like the World Bank and the OECD and governments around the world use themselves. So it's a matter, it's just a matter of are our statistics or our insights better than yours? You know, so I think there's a limit to how far you can get in a battle when much of our field is already writing itself up against policymakers. That's sort of one sort of critique that it's too it's too science oriented and what would be an alternative tool or weapon to continue the metaphor of a fight within the field what would be an alternative so you know i see myself as working within a post foundational tradition and from that even though we didn't work with the idea of Gilles Deleuze his book what is philosophy is a good opening there because he talks about the aim of philosophy being more concerned with finding openings and new directions for thought rather than you know using analysis to close down and find solutions and answers so in that sense that means i'm very accepting of perspectives you know so i don't think in my field of comparative education i'm really reluctant to say this perspective is inadequate um this one is better because for better or worse I view the world as only understandable through perspectives. Um, having said that, what could be done differently? I would say a starting point, and, and we write about that in the book, is to have more humility. You know, there, there are limits to what educational science can do. We know that when we look at a piece of art or we listen to a piece of music, that, that ascetic route, that there are things, or when we fall in love or we experience joy or pain or sorrow, there are things that are just simply beyond transmission, right? And I would say that the centre of the educational contract between between teacher and pupil and school and society is an unwritten and unwritable thing. Uh, and we don't find that in education. You know, the best the best of qualitative method is really about shedding light on every dark corner. And of course, as Kant said, as soon as you shed light on something, you cast a shadow. There are always things that then become obscure.
obscured. And so the question is, with all this light that we shed on education through scientific method, what Ian Stronach called our madness with method, um, what's then put into the darkness? Because that, that is part of the contract of what we call modernity's other. You know, this the rise of reason has another. It has its other side. We're seeing that now in, in political movements around the world, just to take one example. So what's the other in education? I think what I like so much about it is it's humility, but it's also doubt. It's sort of doubting what we're even capable of understanding. And that is, you know, often, at least in the field in comparative ed and international development, where in the world I sort of run in, there's a lot of confidence. And it's the confidence is based on science and good method and, you know, being able to, like you said, shine a light on something and fully expose it and fully identify all the factors at play. And in a sense, there's very little doubt. And it almost seems like you are saying we need to doubt we need to dwell in our uncertainty and that is actually it's valuable to use perhaps the wrong word yeah i would say it's well yeah, maybe valuable isn't the right word but i just think it's necessary and that humility you know there's a double edge to that that humility is your way to awareness and then in nietzschean terms you know, a will to power to your own power to be able to control or at least have the sense of control through letting go is a that's a, a subtle and a philosophical question but i feel this has been written a lot about in post world war 2 french literary studies but you know the the biggest thing holding back uh, western intellectual life is a fear of death you know you need to let go in order to live you know i know that sounds very glib and and quite banal but i found in writing this book without a predetermined end um with only trying to express the sorrow and the joy and the anguish and the anxiety and the alienation and so forth of young people i started to find out more about my own journey because you know i've always felt that all academic work is always biographical it's all, it's also more than biographical, but it's also biographical. And so even picking these studies and using John Baudrillard and being experimental and then being polemic, that says as much about Steve Carney as it does about, you know, a legitimate field to study. But I felt as soon as we started to let go and just let these young people talk and often put them in dialogue with teachers and systems who also had their own logics but could see, but could often come across as quite brutal and uncaring, that just exacerbated the struggles that young people had. We ended up not taking sides. I think we, we went to another meta level thinking, well, that's just how, that's just what the, the struggle of life is you know life is that struggle you only really understand afterwards and it's better to sort of to live in those fragments those fragmented experiences of your of, of presence and everyday life and live from that rather than to try and piece it together and in the western christian sort of tradition find the path you know yeah. the path to completion or to utopia or to salvation or because that never no one ever found that uh, it makes me think of heidegger's comment about how we all should spend more time in graveyards to dwell on that death and on what life is that was a big thing in french literary scholarship to really work with the concept of death of course that was that was central to hegel and to kant as well that death was you know the great theme death now baudrillard has also said death is now no longer an object of analysis because we've defeated death you know and that's just added tenfold to our woes right because now we are we killed god and we're immortal and death has been pushed further and further and further away from our consciousness it's a lingering presence and so i just think you can you can work with that without having a great treatise on what is death we have some pages on that you can work with that idea that freedom comes through letting go and then don't take sides when a young person tells you they've been brutalized 
or they're going to get a scholarship to a great university, or their parents have thrown them out, or they don't know what to do with their life. I think your obligation as a human being, and secondly, as a researcher, is to listen to that and just to respect it without trying to put it into a framework of improvement or of redemption or of understanding, just to let it to dwell in it. I think that's the, the dwelling is a really good point, you know, you know, something that we should do more of. Yeah, but you're also right in saying that in some way the book is quite heavy, you know, and I, in some way I regret that. I think we made it in this radical, fragmented, open-ended, dwelling sort of genre, but I was always worried that it would be more swiftly rejected for being unacademic if we didn't show the reader and our community that we also knew how to do that heavy lifting with theory and method. You know, of course, any one book that tries to catch social theory from Kant to Baudrillard is going to fall short. But we really tried to show that there's a seam in Western scholarship that was always open to these questions of doubt and unknowability, the otherness, that was always there. You don't have to go to spirituality or to religion or to indigenous knowledge systems. It was central to Western thought, but that's been suppressed and marginalized in many fields and it's just not even known in comparative education. You know, when, when we look at our comparative work these days, you don't even find many people going back as far as Habermas or Adorno, let alone to some of these huge debates about is there something rather than nothing? Who am I? What's the nature of the world? They were the only discussions in town 200 years ago, right? And now it's all about how can we increase a grade retention here and reading achievement here? And these are important questions, but they're not the big questions. Yeah, yeah, it seemed quite narrow. You have a chapter in this book that is basically fragments of reviewer feedback that you've received over the years that often is quite negative and challenging, you know, some of the work that we don't actually know what work it was that was being reviewed. We just are getting the reviewer feedback. And it made me wonder why put that in there? Is that sort of a recognition that you might receive similar feedback on this book? Perhaps you already have from some colleagues, but I found that a very peculiar addition to the book to, to sort of read some of these critiques or to recognize that perhaps you know, the perspective that you're putting forward is also challenged by others. That's an interesting question. I mean, the book is about 300 pages, and I guess it's really split in these two halves of these heavy theory and method fragments, and then um, a very long three-country case sort of presentation in fragments. And in the middle there, th there are these three or four pages where there's not much introduction, but there are quotes from reviewers, um, from statements that people have, in some cases, screamed out at me in conferences, saying, how dare you take such a, a disconnected, ambivalent view because young people are in need. And yes, postmodernism post is interesting, but there are real issues. So can we please get back to the proper discussion? That sort of thing. I put that in there really because of my interest in literature and interest in particularly Shakespearean literature, that often you'll find a jester in the middle of a play where the tone has to shift. So I think part of it was stylistic that after this 150 hard pages of fragments of theory, you know, from Kant to Baudrillard and so forth, and then all this stuff about method, about what had been written on ethnography from anthropology right up to the literary turn in anthropology and so forth, then I wanted to have a break. And I thought, and part of that was to preempt people who were already thinking this book isn't very clever because I was already putting into their mouth exactly the sorts of critiques I knew must come from that positivistic, so 
social science research tradition. So it was sort of preempting those, but also in the Shakespearean sense, um, recognizing that the only response to all of this, to almost everything, is laughter, which also has a long philosophical heritage. And to be able to laugh, not just at a, at a good joke, but be able to laugh at purported seriousness of any sort of academic text that purports to talk about the world and to help us understand. That was also an exercise in humility. But I guess there was also a sense in which it was cathartic because I also wanted to write down some of the things that people had said, which from their perspective made very good sense, which, but were not the sort of thing I would want to entertain in a critique of this book because it has other premises. I like this idea of the gesture in the middle, sort of adding comedy. I laughed when I read it, that section. It was funny because of having gone through 150 pages of quite heavy theory and theory not presented in the way I'm used to. So it was that actually worked quite well, I must say. So, you know, in one of the fragments, you have this notion of taking a fatal approach in sort of writing and in research. And it's, you know, the idea that you sort of present it as is it's trying to undermine the system of meaning and sort of push systems of meaning to the breaking point. The question, I guess, to end our conversation is, do you think you've achieved that fatal approach? Like, did you push something to the breaking point with this book? I would like to think so. I think we start the book with a quote from Andy Walhold, you know, saying, you know, the aim of my work is to leave people wanting less, you know, which is his very many sort of deliberately sarcastic, but sort of self-reflective points. So I think part of this book is it is a 300 page request that people don't take themselves so seriously that when they do educational science in inverted commas, realize that you're pretending to be scientific because you can only be scientific about a very small domain of human experience, right? So I think there's that. I think towards the end, we opened up to a direction that we would both like to follow in the future, and that was to looking at, at other ontologies. And so I've been very interested in what some of our colleagues are doing in Japan, trying to look at, at different ways to understand meaning and meaninglessness and the aim of education. So in that sense, I think the book ends up moving towards a program for the future. The very last fragment is in the conclusion, and that captures a lot of what we've talked about today, because it was one of the main characters, Joseph in Zambia, a boy we got to know quite well. And, you know, he goes down to the river with his friends after school to play football. And he comes, his football gets kicked away. This is a, a fragment we in effect made up. It was a magical realist fragment, but he kicks his football away and then he picks it up and, and he has an encounter with a bird. And he, is, he has this interaction with this bird that is mystical in some way. He can, the two creatures are talking, but they can't share words to explain their shared experience. And then he sort of snaps out of that, I guess what Nietzsche would call the real world, the world that we can't understand. He snaps out of that and goes back to his friends, back into this world of appearances, you know, and, and where we have to just make do with our limitations of language and understanding. So I think in that sense, it's maybe too subtle for an education audience. This was a literary attempt to try and make people see that there is a, metaphysics may not be the right word, but there's something beyond appearances that we can't catch. That's the essence of what it means to be a human and what it means to engage with other people. And we'll never catch that with words. We know that from Derrida, that words, words have these limitations and how we can think and so forth. But we will never understand fully what it means to be human by trying to reduce that to the genre of science. And education has that same problem built into it. So the question is, how do you go on when we can only ever be inadequate? And that to me is a wonderful starting point.
to realize that we can be inadequate. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be innovative and experiment. It doesn't mean we should represent the rights of people who are dispossessed and, and being dominated. Definitely not. But there has to be a, a humility to what we can achieve as researchers and what science and knowledge can achieve. Well, Steve Carney, thank you so much for joining Fresh Out again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you very much, Will. Steve Carney is a professor at Roskilde University in Denmark. His new book, co-written with Ulla Madsen, is Education in Radical Uncertainty, Transgression in Theory and Method. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Akhtas, Obafemi Ongunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. FreshEd is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the Shakhtar Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to FreshEd by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brebb, and I'll be back next week.